This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. The Festival of Lessons and Carols is a prayer service that originated in 19th century England. The idea is simple. Every Christmas Eve, attendees listen to nine readings or lessons drawn from Scripture and then sing nine songs that reflect on their meaning. On this episode, Commonweal Associate Editor Griffin Olanik speaks with memoirist John West, whose new book, Lessons and Carols, A Meditation on Recovery, creatively adapts that tradition as it ponders how poetry, ritual, and community can heal the pain of alcoholism and mental illness. That's coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. So Griffin, it's good to have you here, although I think in the interests of being honest with our audience, you're not actually here in the office with me, but working, as they say, from home today. I am at home today. Every now and then it's good to work from home. It is. And I'm also glad to know, though, that you did get to speak with John West, and it's a conversation that I've been looking forward to hearing. So maybe tell us a little bit about it. Sure. So let me say first that John's book is quirky. It's highly readable, but it's also really difficult to summarize in just a few words. John tells what seems like a simple story about his life, depression in high school, then in college, a struggle with alcoholism and time spent in rehab. In his 20s, John bounced between different jobs in various cities like New York and Chicago before finding sobriety, getting married and having a daughter and later getting a job as a data journalist for The Wall Street Journal, where I should say he's part of a team that just won the Pulitzer Prize this year for reporting. So where does the lessons and carol service that you mentioned in the intro come in? It's something that John actually started doing in college and now hosts every year in his house. He hosts a lesson and carol service for his friends. Some of them are believers. Many of them aren't. So the memoir is also a personal essay on the meaning of the incarnation and how it slowly, gradually brought about his recovery. So Griffin, this sounds pretty interesting. And why don't we take a listen? Sounds good. John West, welcome to the Commonweal Podcast. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. The memoir you've just written is about addiction and sobriety, loss and recovery. And you make a deliberate choice to write the story entirely in fragments and in the present tense, something that, as you point out, critics hate. So could you tell us more about that choice? Did you have other models in mind? Why was it necessary for the story of recovery that you're trying to tell here? Yeah, I'm really mistrustful of... I guess narrative. (laughs) I don't trust narrative. I don't trust the way it it grants some kind of authority to the story you're telling to have Mm. this beginning and middle and end. And so I wanted to, as much as possible, reflect the kind of malleable, plastic way that I feel like my life has unfolded Mm. and the way that I continually come across new and better ways of understanding my path. Mm. And I think that by putting in the present tense, by dislocating the reader in space and time i'm hopefully kind of cueing them into the idea that like you know don't read this as a redemption story kind of a classic redemption story don't read Mm. this as a traditional recovery memoir read this Mm. differently it was a challenge to write it that way but i i I think it like it it felt true to write it that way Mm. and i also think that in, in the fragments are another dislocating element the kind of idea of a fragment as being something that rubs up against its neighbors in some kind of interesting way, Mm. whether or not the neighbor is temporally proximate or not. 
hmm. is the point I was trying to get at with those fragments. You have this white space, this kind of silence, right? Because, you, you know, you can't really write silence. And we're on a podcast right now and I can be quiet and there's silence. And that's great. We have that power. I think on the page, the only way to produce silence really is white space. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to have this moment of like pause and reflection that was the same pause and reflection between each fragment, which is why they're each on an individual page. To kind mm-hmm. of indicate no one of these things is formally distinct from the next. They're all one beat apart from each other, whether or not temporally they are actually five years apart or 10 years apart or one one day apart. They all have the same space between them, the same amount of silence between them, which I hope also kind of creates this interesting, kind of creates interesting juxtapositions between the, the decals of LA. I think that it almost has the feel of a flip book. Like uh, the more mm-hmm. you, like the individual fragments are individual frames and they're little sometimes snippets from your life. Sometimes they're sources of philosophical or artistic inspiration. Sometimes they're really harrowing tales of sexual shame, depression, and all of that unfolds concurrently with your struggle to believe in God. And so I'm wondering next, how do you understand that relationship between sexuality, mental health, and spirituality, mm-hmm. both as it's happened in your personal life and in general? It's a great question. I think that the through line here is that I am constantly confronted by assuming paradoxes in my life. You have on the one hand belief or unbelief, and they both feel wrong to me in some meaningful way. Mm. And ditto, like I'm confronted with I'm bisexual. And so like this, this is like kind of like, well, is it this or is it that? Or in recovery, I'm either sober or I'm not. And you have these like really clear binaries that oftentimes feel unfulfilling or the questions of which am I going to pick feels like an unfulfilling question. And I think that like recovered, not recovered, right? And it's not sober or not. It's really like recovered or not recovered. I quote Wittgenstein who says, and I'm going to butcher this, but he says, the philosophical questions which one comes back to again and again is if bewitched. These I should like to expunge from philosophical language, which is a great quote. The way I've come to understand spirituality or my particular struggle with spirituality as I have had it for the last couple of decades hmm. has been, how do I get past the question of belief? into a more fruitful set of questions. I don't actually think that the question of do I believe in God, yes or no, or can I say the creed, yes or no, is really the crux of my understanding of spirituality or faith. I think in some ways, faith is about getting beyond the question of belief and into more interesting questions. And in the same way, I think that I want to get beyond questions of have I recovered or not, or am I sick or or not sick, or am I pick your binary? I want to get beyond those questions and into more fruitful territory. Well, your book has this beautiful way of going beyond the kinds of theological impasses that we as believers can find ourselves in. And I'm reminded of one of the, one fragment from your book that I'm hoping you'll read. It's when you meet Jason, a Catholic friend of yours from Minneapolis. Yeah. And something that strikes me as I'm doing this is this is the paradox of the present tense is that I put it in the present tense and now it's, well, do I still think this? And it, it almost, but let me read it and then, I'll, and then I can, yeah, okay, let me read it. Jason, a Catholic friend of mine, asks where I go to church. We're walking around a Minneapolis lake on the day when the sky is the kind of blue that can't be reproduced. Jason's pants are too short and his posture is too straight, but I find he cuts a strangely majestic figure. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of the kind of highbrow cultural trivia that others find impressively, if uselessly smart. Like he's read Ovid. A year or two ago, he wrote a poem that contained a line about libidinous fireflies. He's a better musician than I am. He gets better grades too. He's a Republican though, so I guess you can't have it all. 
When I tell him about our congregational church, he nods, satisfied, as though this fact speaks to some secret truth about my soul. He's always been a little smug about religion, though I know he means well. He goes to a church whose mass is still on my Vatican to be damned. You're a Calvinist then, he says. Am I? I look out across the lake, oddly shaped. It's narrow where we're walking, and I can see the dots of people strolling along the other side. You should know, he laughs. Despite myself, I've harbored a crush on him since middle school. I don't think we believe in predestination or anything like that. At least I don't. I lie. We have just learned about the Reformation in our high school's world history class. I can't remember the other theological fault line, something about what the communion bread and wine really turned into. These kinds of arguments seem impossibly far away, trivial, seen to the back end of a set of binoculars. I can't get worked up about them. No, what I want to get worked up about are the big things. I want to get worked up about God, about greatness and art. That section, it's funny. I, you know, that, that's me in high school having that conversation. Maybe, yeah, it was high school, late high school having that conversation. And I don't know. I don't know. If I, I think I'm right that I do want to get beyond that, those theological questions. But so much of that, as I say, is tinged with this kind of nostalgia and this, oh, that's so charming. That's what I thought. This mm -hmm. greatness and art questions. And I don't know, what does it mean to be great? What I'm trying to get at is there's this way in which in the book, you've got the sense of humor that constantly deflates your own ego. You've got these impulses toward grandiosity, and yet you're constantly puncturing them with little takedowns of yourself. I want to ask about your sense of writing about the self. Why did you want to write about yourself? What did you learn in writing about yourself and about the self in general? Yeah, I wanted to write about myself because I wanted, I think, fundamentally to be legible. And I was shy about writing about myself for a long time. And I think I still am somewhat ambivalent about the project. Is it worthwhile to write about oneself, especially when one's own experiences are, I don't know, if I'm, in a, if I'm being especially nasty to myself, I might say, especially when one's own experiences are so kind of quotidian. You read most memoirs, they have a big hook. Prince Harry is Prince Harry, and we're interested in him because we're <laughs> right. gospel creatures and we want to read about his terrible upbringing or whatever. So there's a hook there, or you can think of some somebody who's gone through some horrific circumstances. And I, you know, I went through some shit, but it wasn't by any stretch of the imagination, the kind of it wasn't tantalizing. No, and, I, in a way, it's very ordinary or it's very mundane. Yeah. You recount your experiences with depression. A lot of us have had experiences with depression. Yours are somewhat more pronounced. Not all of us have been in institutions. And yet you make even those institutions right. seem mundane and run of the mill. Yeah, I think it's like this kind of like this, like my life is interesting to me. And I hope that the parts that I share of myself are interesting to the reader. But there is, I, I have this fundamental ambivalence about the worthwhileness of a memoir about my life. And so I actually dislike calling the book a memoir. I always thought of it as more of an essay than a memoir. And maybe that's splitting hairs to try to stave off some kind of, I don't know, <laughs> stave off critique that no one's actually leveling. But I do think that like, the fundamental act of writing a memoir is something is communicative. And I wanted to communicate who I was and my experiences in such a way that I hope would resonate with people and maybe they could see themselves in it. And maybe they could see on the page how grappling with one's life can produce new ways of understanding and new ways of kind of being. And that's the hope. And I don't know if it's always successful. I hope it is. But I do think that despite all my ambivalence about the project of describing my own life, I think like there is something fundamentally interesting in general about a self, whether or not 
I am particularly interesting is maybe beside the point, maybe this is another one of those, those terrible binaries that I want to get out of. Mm. Interesting, not interesting, whatever. But I think that communicating and making oneself legible is an important just part of being human. And I hope that process of, of trying to make myself legible is interesting. Well, I think it certainly is. I think that there's other fascinating aspects of yourself. In addition to being a computer programmer and a data journalist, you're also a trained musical composer. And besides creative writing and poetry, you've studied philosophy. So I'm wondering how of all these different disciplines, computer science, philosophy, the arts, other stray reading that you've done, which you recount often in detail in the book, how has all of that shaped your sensibility of what it means to be human? I think we're all pastiche. I think in some meaningful way, we are amalgams of the stuff we, the art and the culture and the meaning that we read and watch and everything. And I, I bring this up in the book. I think that there's something, we have this virtue or we think it's a virtue to be unique. And I guess there's like some virtue in being true to oneself. But like a self is inherently social. A self is inherently embedded in an artistic landscape, a cultural landscape. And I think that those, that embedding is really important for who we are. And originality is overrated. And so I, I was really keen to bring in as much as possible the kind of cite my sources for how I got to be the way I am. Not in a hopefully kind of pedantic way, but just to, to hopefully illuminate like this is to show my work, I guess, in a way of this is how I, this is how I came to this idea. It's through these four people and trying to synthesize it and make sense of it, even though they don't agree, or even though they do agree in some weird way, but disagree on all these others. And I think that, that that process of refining a self out of the kind of raw material of what we're given is, is it, that's the whole game, right? That's how we, that's how we make meaning for ourselves is through others and through that social and cultural fabric. That totally makes sense. And I want to drill down on that, the social self that you're speaking about. It was interesting to me how so many of the characters in the book, some of whom are named like Galen, your wife, some of whom are just given initials, like many of your friends who have passed away, the way that those characters make their way into the acknowledgments so that the acknowledgments, the note of thanks that comes at the end of the book, mirrors the kind of thanksgiving that's happening throughout the book in its different episodes. Loss is one of the major structuring principles of the book. So I'm wondering if you could speak more about that, not just the experience of losing friends as you have, but how yourself, your social self reckons with that kind of ongoing loss. Yeah. So many of the elegies in the book are really about me. They're not about, they are about the people who passed away or disappeared, but they're also really about what you just said, which is mourning the part of myself that I won't get to see move forward. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the way that language fails is in the analog. You know, I, I bring this up in the book all the time. Like you start forgetting things about people or you start questioning whether the things that you remember are really the things that they, that happened because memory is fickle and the grooves that we kind of trace through our memories, like oftentimes they are not quite right. So there's this the weird effect as someone gets further and further away in the past there and they've ceased progressing forward in time with you. I think that like you were losing who they were or who you were when you were with them. And that's mirrored in the kind of way that language itself can cannot fully translate the concepts that we have into being. And that's the kind of crux of those sections is I'm complaining constantly in those sections. A word is elegy to what it signifies, which is a Robert Haas quote. And I think that 
you're right to point to the way that impacts the self constantly. Mm-hmm. That really that what you're mourning is not just, you're not just mourning the passing of a friend or well, whoever. You're really mourning the part of yourself, I think, that was with them too. I think that's a really important part of what you mourn when you mourn someone. It's who you were when you were with them. Which is not to say that it's lost forever. Hopefully you come to a place where that kind of like avatar of the person is still with you the one that you've constructed in your head. It's just you have to remember that the one, the person you constructed in your head is a poor facsimile for the actual flesh and blood person that was once present. Mm-hmm. I think there's also, at least for you as it emerges in the book, there's a connection with the natural order. When you talk about, I'm quoting from you, one, win- one winter up in rural Wisconsin before so many friendships fell off their boughs and turned to mulch for new ones. And I love that metaphor, that, that even friendship itself is kind of part of the natural order, the cycle of dying, but also regeneration. And yet there are relationships that perdure. I'm wondering if you could th- speak to maybe the stability that those relationships have given you. There's this something that transcends the natural order, which is grace. And that's what you're finding in some of these relationships. It speaks precisely in our finitude that we find grace. That is the fact of our mortality and the fact of our transientness that enables grace. So interesting. I don't know if theologically this is a sound thing that I'm about to say. There's something about Calvin, and he had that line. Calvin says, "Is our abasement is his exaltation. So also the confession of our lowliness always has his mercy near as a remedy. Which I think can be kind of a bummer if you think about it. But if you think about it a little bit more, I think like the way I have chosen to understand that, and I, again, I think Calvin might have me Burns heretic, but nonetheless, I think as I've chosen to understand this, it is precisely in our humanness, our fallenness, that we get to have grace. Hmm. And so the fact that it enables grace is our finitude and our fallenness enables grace is what makes us at all redeemable. Hmm. Uh, at all worthwhile. And so it's interesting, despite all of the human and institutions being built up, the institution of marriage, the institution of the nuclear family, the institution of family in general, all of these things that we have built up as humans will fail. They do fail in the end. In the end, we all die alone. And that like that understanding that all flesh waxes old as a garment, and this is the covenant from the beginning, that you will die to death, that is what enables grace and what enables God to be in my life. We'll have more of Griffin's conversation with John West in a moment. Earning a Master of Theological Studies in the Franciscan Theology Program at the Franciscan School of Theology is now possible from anywhere in the world. The degree offers a blend of academic engagement and spiritual reflection. The online program allows you to learn at your own pace while connecting with fellow students and instructors in a respectful and down-to-earth environment. It's about learning to think critically, considering different views and analyzing sources and perspectives. The program emphasizes creating space for mutual respect, a true Franciscan value. Embark on a 24-month, mutually transformative journey with the world-renowned faculty and instructors from FST. Visit theologicalstudies.sandiego.edu to learn more. You write that for many in your circle, for instance, your college friends, you say, have mostly settled in major American cities and prestigious careers. They don't tend to think about things this way, that that you calling yourself a Christian is seen as something strange by them. 
I want to ask you more about that. How have your friends, your friends who aren't Christian, received your Christianity? How do you speak across that difference? That How has that difference enriched your life? And how has it enriched your writing? I wrote this book because of that, I think. I think the way the book turned out was it, it, driven in large part by a desire to be legible to my friends. And that's just my friends, people in that cohort. And that's not the only reason I wrote the book. I think, I think the inverse is also true. I think I wrote the book to to try to make this this way of thinking about faith legible to more traditional believers. I think both are true. That like that that the, the those are two reasons why I wrote the book the way I did. And so I do feel weird. I feel like a fish out of water oftentimes, either in religious contexts where my theology is maybe inchoate or wrong or whatever it is, or in a more secular context where I do feel like I want to be bringing in the kind of more numinous quality of life into them. And I feel like that is sometimes frowned upon. And even within myself, like I, I have this elite reaction, coastal elite reaction to myself sometimes. Of, mm. oh, I can't believe I believe that. I can't mm-hmm. believe I think that. How gauche to how, how utterly, utterly uh, uncosmopolitan to have these feelings around God. And yet, I think that my friends have been incredibly wonderful about wanting to come on the journey with me. Mm. You know, the, while they might not be believers, every year we do the lesson with carols and every year people come and every year we turn off the lights and hold up candles right after we sing Silent Night and we say, and the light shone in the darkness and the darkness mm. did not overcome it. And people get really moved. And I think that that is it. Like whether or not you are a believer or not, or call yourself a Christian or not, that feeling is exactly what I love about the Christian tradition. And that feeling is why I thirst to learn more and and deepen my connection with God. And so that sharing that experience and having friends who are willing to come and let that experience be shared with them, I think is so lovely and so, so beautiful. And so I'm really grateful that, you know, that they're willing to do that, even though I do oftentimes feel questions about like, you, you, you really think that? <laughs> well, we get glimpses into your religious life and your religious practice today, but I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about it. What does it look like? And you talk about at a certain point, you're going to Quaker meetings. You were raised congregationalist. I gather that there's a kind of heterodox nature to your religious practice, but I'm wondering if you could just say a little bit more about how that's unfolding for you today, as, and especially as you bring up your daughter. Yeah, I have a pretty active prayer life. And I think that's the primary vector for God <laughs> to come into my daily life is I pray every morning. And that feels good to me. And I have kind of set prayers that I do. I have an app, a Bible app that gives me a Bible reading, a Bible verse every day. Mm-hmm. And I try to reflect on that in journal form. Mm-hmm. And sometimes my reflection is, this makes no sense. And other times my reflection is, wow, this really moved me. And they run the gamut there. But I do try to engage with some scripture and I do try to engage in prayer every day. And then there's also, we don't go to Quaker meeting as much as I would like. It's hard with the young kid. Chelsea, she's pretty great about it. We went on Easter and we, Galen and I took turns being with her kind of outside and let her play around a little bit while meeting was going on inside. We would each kind of half the meeting. And then, and the last 10 minutes we brought her inside and she was very quiet and very still. And she kept going, shh. Like that to herself, which is adorable, and everyone seemed to like it. <laughs> so that's good. I think as she gets older, I'll be very curious to see, and it's I'm very curious to see like how she understands my faith and if she wants to take part in it or not. And I don't know. I'm not eager to put her necessarily into Sunday school, but at the same token, I think it's really useful to know about this stuff 
maybe from a more religious studies and less theological perspective. And hopefully she'll come to it on her own if she finds that valuable. I know it's been valuable to me, but at points in my life, I would have never thought. Looking back at the 13-year-old or 14-year-old reading Dawkins and thinking about how much cleverer I was than my religious friends, I don't know that I would have believed (laughs) that I was going to be like this. (laughs) So you're a practicing Christian, but you're also a practicing artist. And I'm wondering if you could speak to the connection between those two, between Christianity and the arts, the life of the Christian and the life of the artist. What similarities do you see? Yeah, yeah. You have an aesthetic mind, like you're a composer, you're also a believer. And I also wanted to ask about ritual, but I don't know how to get into that either. Well, the two are related, right? I think ritual and art are always two sides of the same coin. I used to really be concerned, am I a real writer or not? This was before I was published much at all. And I was like, well, am I a real writer? And and I think the answer is you're a real writer if you write. And the ritual of writing is what makes you a writer. In the same way that I actually, I think that the ritual of prayer or the ritual of attending services is what makes you a Christian, not a belief in a particular creed. Mm. And so I think it's the ritualistic aspects that actually drive the identity, not the other way around. And I would say that like one of the great gifts of music for me has been religious music. And I think about it often, like, what a democratizing force. Not in every way. It's a bit abundantly clear here. Not in every way. And it's very, I'm speaking really narrowly. Here. Like, what a democratizing force the church has been to give access to people to wonderful art. Hmm. You go into a church and there's beautiful stained glass and someone's playing a cantata and it's beautiful and it's moving you into a new kind of way of thinking about the world and you get access to that for free at a church and how cool is that and i i know that like the church has all these problems in the church and i'm speaking really broadly here the legacy of christianity is not pure and not necessarily great and depending on who you are it can be really actually has been a really terrible legacy Hmm. but there are parts of the christian experience that tying yourself into i think is really beautiful one of those being the rituals around music and the rituals around art. So much art has been produced by believers because they believe. Hmm. And I think that's a lovely thing. I don't really want to say that the artistic impulse is always spiritual, but I think it is. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe I can say spiritual. Maybe I can get away with it if I say spiritual and not religious. Right? Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Um, but, but I think there's something, something, you're tapping into some kind of non-materialistic way of thinking about the world when you create art, I think in general. And that like non-materialism, that kind of anti-mundane way of thinking about the world is, I think, the thing, again, that, that distinguishes spiritual religious practice from the kind of spiritual religious practice that I'm interested in, at least, from the more secular base modes of thinking about the world. Yeah, I guess as a final question, I want to ask, you're speaking about belief, you're speaking about art as a kind of habit. You're a writer if, if you write. You're a believer if you pray, you have to do something. And the last word in your subtitle, Meditation on Recovery, I want to ask you about that recovery. You are recovered. That is, a difference has occurred. And recovery is something that is ongoing for you. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that. How do you stay recovered, if that makes sense? Yeah. There's a saying that you're always getting closer to or further from your next drink, that you're never static. I think that's true. I think that like you stay recovered by being ever more recovered. Mm. And that, that sounds like a bullshit answer, I know, but it's 
the truth, which is that if you're not engaging with and becoming more connected and more of use and more, the term is spiritually fit, which I don't actually love that term. If you're not doing those things, you are in some meaningful way losing ground to your addiction. I I think that is true. I also think though that I said this at the New York launch and I thought it was pretty stupid at the time. And then I thought about it some more. <laughs> Maybe it's that stupid. In the office, Pam Beasley gets drunk and says, I think God is here in this Chili's. And it's a funny line, right? It's like God at the Chili's. That's funny. <laughs> and yet, right? Like God is at the Chili's. And I think like God is also in the Zoom rooms and God is also in the IM chat rooms that I engaged, that I was in as a teen. I think that like, we have a remarkable capacity to find new ways to be engaged with each other. And I, I don't mean this to like dismiss the concerns around what various technologies are doing to us, the way certain technologies are breaking us apart or the way injustice is sapping us of our kind of humanity. I just really do have a lot of hope and a lot of faith in the human interest in connection and community and spirituality and finding the new mist in the kind of mundane. And so I think that we get recovered by being ever more recovered. And also we get to find new ways to, to, to be more recovered all the time. And we get new opportunities to, to identify those things uh, um, all the time. And that's pretty rad. <laughs> that is pretty rad. John, thanks so much for coming on the Commonwealth Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was a real blast. John West's new book is Lessons and Carols, A Meditation on Recovery, available now from Erdman's. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. Thanks for listening. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.